0: talking about uh, a person that I didn't know and uh, their opinion of this person wasn't very favorable Um, and I'll just call him Jerry for the sake of uh, anonymity here. Um, A few months after that time I met Jerry actually in person and I I found myself being more careful around him than I would have otherwise. I found myself being more skeptical of the kinds of things Saying maybe normal I normally would be, I was hesitant uh, hesitant to extend myself towards him in, in ways because of this conversation, and that kind of characterized our interactions um, over the, the following year. And a few months ago, I learned something very disturbing. Uh, the Jerry who was the subject of that conversation was not the Jerry who I was to and knew, they were literally two different Jerry's, <laughs> two different people altogether. So I had started with this distorted view of this man that had shaped unfairly how I interacted with him to my, my shame, how I trusted him and how I interacted with him. In the same way, we all start with a distorted view of who God is. We arrive on planet earth and ever since the servant distorted uh, who God was to Eve, we have been inventing images of him ever since. Sin is always the result of God's distortion. And that's why as we meet week after week, it's so important to continually get clear on who God is and what God has done over and over and over again because if I'm clear on who God is and what he's doing in the world I will have a better understanding of what marriage is for and friendship is for and politics are for and money and hobbies and learning and all those things will all find their place you got us a bit like the department of government that establishes the value of the dollar As they do that it affects the value of everything else it shapes everything downstream from it and that's how it our estimation and our view of God in its accuracy or inaccuracy affects everything else that flows downstream in our life. And that's why the basic purpose of Christianity is getting clear on who God is and what God has done. That's fundamental. So that's what becoming a Christian basically is. You're submitting to who God says that He is and trusting what God says He has done. And then as a Christian, living as a Christian means sharpening that image of God's character so that what's downstream is shaped accordingly. Or as Second Corinthians 4 says, as we behold the glory of the Lord, we are transformed from one degree of glory to another. This is important, our view of God and the accuracy of it. And we're going to see this morning that God protects his image against all our desires to manipulate him. He insists, and he is very skilled at what we will call distortion prevention, over and over again. God is radically committed to clarifying and reclarifying who he is and what he has done in the world. Before we read our text this morning, I wanted to clarify something. and That's what the Ark of the Covenant is. That's a phrase that's going to come up in our text. So, I want to tell you what that is before we read so you'll understand as we read. It was a, um, a, a box, essentially, a four foot by two foot wooden box that God told Moses to construct for the tabernacle or this tent that they were moving around in. It was overlaid with gold, and its lid, the thing on top, was called the mercy seat. It held two angelic figures kind of bowing in reverence with their you know, wings, foreseeably uh, pointed toward the center. And it was to be uh, transported by a pole. So the poles went through these rings and then carried this thing. And we know that this was, the Ark of the Covenant was really important um, because it was the first thing that God tells Moses to build. And it was one of the only objects that was in the Holy of Holies, which was the very center of the tent where God essentially manifested his presence. Okay, now in this box, it was really important that we know too because the law or the tablets God wrote on were inside of it. Uh, the, the manna or bread type stuff that, that Israel had, uh, lived on and you can staff it's inside of it. Um, so that's kind of a symbol you could say of God's word or God's voice to his people. That's where he meets his people. It says in Exodus 25 uh, when it's describing this ark there I will meet with you, says God speaking and from above the mercy seat that's kind of the lid From between the two cherubim that are on the Ark of the Testimony, I will speak with you about all that I will give you. So that's what the Ark of the Covenant is. Now that we're ready, uh, if you're able to physically stand, we're going to read uh, 1 Samuel chapter 4, the second half of verse 1 through verse 22. Here's God's word. It says, Now Israel went out to battle against the Philistines, they encamped at Ebenezer, and the Philistines encamped at Apex. The Philistines drew up in line against Israel, and when the battle spread, Israel was defeated by the Philistines, who killed about 4,000 men on the field of battle. And when the troops came to the camp, the elders of Israel said, Why has the Lord defeated us today before the Philistines? Let us bring the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord here from Shiloh, that it may come among us and save us from the power of our enemies. So the people sent to Shiloh and brought from there the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord of Hosts, who was enthroned in the cherubim. And the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were there with the Ark of the Covenant of God. As soon as the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord came into the camp, all Israel gave a mighty shout, so that the earth resounded. And when the Philistines heard the noise of the shouting, they said, What is this great shouting in the camp of the Hebrews? And when they learned that the ark of the Lord had come to the camp, the Philistines were afraid, for they said, "A god has come into the camp." And they said, "Woe to us! For nothing like this has happened before. Woe to us! Who can deliver us from the power of these mighty gods? These are the gods who struck the Egyptians with every sort of plague and wilderness. Take courage and be men, O Philistines, lest you become slaves to the Hebrews, as they have been to you. Be men and fight." Philistines fought, and Israel was defeated, and they fled, every man to his home. And there was a very great slaughter, for there fell of Israel thirty thousand foot soldiers. And the Ark of God was captured. And the two sons of Eli, Hophni, and Phineas, died. The man of Benjamin ran from the battle line and came to Shiloh the same day, with his clothes torn and with dirt on his head. When he arrived, Eli was sitting on his seat by the road watching. His heart trembled for the ark of God. And when the man came into the city and told the news, all the city cried out. When Eli heard the sound of the outcry, he said, What is this uproar? Then the man prayed and came and told Eli. Now Eli was 98 years old and his eyes were set, but he could not see. And the man said to Eli, I am he who has come from the battle. I fled from the battle today. And he said, How did it go, my son? Who brought the news? Answered and said, "Israel has fled before the Philistines, and there has been also been a great defeat among the people. Your two sons, also Hophni and Phinehas, are dead, and the Ark of God has been captured." As soon as he mentioned the Ark of God, Eli fell over backward from his seat by the side of the gate, and his neck was broken, and he died, for the man was old and heavy. He had judged Israel forty years. Now his daughter-in-law, the wife of Phineas, was pregnant, about to give birth. And when she heard the news that the Ark of God was captured, and that her father-in-law and her husband were dead, she bowed and gave birth, for her pains came upon her. And about the time of her death, the women attending her said to her, "Do not be afraid for you, a son. But she did not answer or pay attention, and she named the child Ichabod, saying, The glory has departed the ark of God has been captured because of her father-in-law and her husband. She said the glory has departed from Israel but the ark of God has been captured. When the idolatrous Israelites presume that God will protect them God protects his glory by delivering his judgment and by going into exile. Kind of a summary of our text. When the idolatrous Israelites presume that God will protect them, God protects his glory by delivering his promised judgment and by going into exile. Three parts of our outline today as we follow this narrative in 1 Samuel 4. First, a missed opportunity. Repent, and two superstition and three shocking outcomes and shock waves that we'll talk about. Um, just wrap up in preparation for communion this So first, we see in verses one through three, in the first half of verse three, this missed opportunity. We know that God has reopened communication with Israel. Remember that last week. He established Samuel as a prophet phone line is plugged in, communication is opened up again, and as soon as that happens the camera fades out and goes to a very, very different scene to, to show the conclusion of Eli's house. Notice that Samuel isn't really present in any of what's going on, and won't be for some time. There's this battle that breaks out between the Philistines and the Israelites. The Philistines were advancing, they were in a, uh, uh, sort of a powerhouse in the area, they were Technology and all kinds of things, and so they were expanding their territory. And they line up for battle, and four thousand Israelites died. Now, defeat—it wasn't really the expected outcome. You can kind of tell from the reaction. Um, and we don't know a lot about um, their specific ruling context, but this defeat leads these community leaders or these elders to ask a great and necessary question, which is—you can see there in verse 3, why has the Lord defeated us today before the Philistines? Now you might be thinking the Lord didn't defeat them, it was the Philistines. Right? Well, Israelites never really struggle with this idea that God is sovereign even over evil and death. And that, that was just assumed in their worldview. Okay, He may not have had the sword in his hand, but he did have the final say. And he gave approval to this defeat. And they know that so now they're asking a great, great question. Why did God have this happen? Now, you have to know the backstory to know why that question is so important. We know from the context of the first three chapters of First Samuel, we know why the Lord is using this as a warning, right? There's a famine of God's word that's just ended. But it's not, it's not like Israel's transformed in the night. Not everything is hunky-dory, right? They still have these community leaders who are who are making decisions apart from consulting God. They still have these political issues with, with the Philistines. There's still this forecasted disaster for Eli and his house. and So not all is right with Israel just because the lines of communication have been reopened. Israel's kind of a dumpster fire right now, to be honest. Not a lot's going well for it other than This newly established prophet. So, this is a perfect opportunity for these community leaders to take stock of their spiritual condition, isn't it? What a gracious thing of God to do. Say, guys, they're priests, they hire prostitutes. They're robbing people as they're bringing their sacrifices to worship on the way to worship. You sent Phineas and Hophni, these two wicked priests, to go get the ark. What's wrong? (laughs) They asked the right question. And so do they humble humble themselves and say, Lord, we we have allowed this too long. You have not been in your rightful place. We will heed your warning. We have a distorted view of what you're like. Now, we can relate with this, can't we? Mm -hmm. Aren't there times when owning up to your rebellion and your sin are literally the last thing you are willing to do? Mm -hmm. Right? Crawl over broken glass? Fine. (laughs) No problem. Right? Run 10 miles? Absolutely. Just, I don't want. That turn apart, that admission of weakness, that pride to get torn apart. I just don't want that. We know what this is like. When we think what we need is sleep, or a chocolate bar, or a vacation, or entertainment, or a good wine session, or whatever it is, right? we are good at ignoring the gracious mornings, God. And aren't we likely to, to pull on things that have worked before, things that might even look like trust? Put on your favorite list of songs to worship to. Read your Bible. Instead of getting on your knees and Sometimes we distort the character of God by acting like he's impersonal. Like he's really just interested in outcomes. And like just spread the gospel, make the mission happen. Do what I told you, it doesn't matter what motivates you. Just do the right answer. It doesn't matter if you're living it. We can think that God is like that, that he's impersonal. But he's glorious because he is personal. He isn't a system. He isn't a blessings distributor. We can't pull levers and manipulate him. He isn't a god that we we can control or trip he is our father the loving personal father son and spirit who demand heartfelt obedience from his people and he is so personal that even actions that are done in faith even if they're based in ignorance are still pleasing to him that's how personal he is so you see this question why has the lord defeated us today before the philistines could have been a prayer that they prayed together in repentance and that's not what they do so God is gloriously personal so our attempts to reduce him to an external religious system are actually a way that we try to manipulate Him. so that's the first point this missed opportunity but we see then what they do Right after they ask that question, they say, let us bring the ark of the covenant of the Lord here from Shiloh, that it may come among us and save us from the power of our enemies. Answer to God's warning, go get the magic box. There's such irony in this response because what just happened with Samuel? He just reopened communication with his people. And what happens a thousand other times in the Old Testament when they're up against the wall and they don't know what to do, and they they uh, they're they're in this tense situation? Let's go talk to the prophet. Let's get God's voice on this. And the whole thing has just been reopened and was saying, "But what do they do? Go get the box." What's what should they do instead? Now, why would they go get the ark? That sounds odd. Well, it's a little more understandable when you know that there's a. The ark has a lot of history. There's a lot of deliverance that God brings when the ark of the covenant is present with His people. At like Joshua, when they're crossing the Jordan River, as soon as the priests who are carrying this ark touch the water, the river splits, kind of like the Red Sea 2.0, you know, version. And they walk through and they're Remember Jericho, when they walk around the wall They were carrying the ark, and that happened. And so they're not insane for connecting God's deliverance with this box. But the problem is they're not accounting for the fact that God is personal. He isn't a divine charm. And it's not as simple as, just let's get the box closer. Right? God was the one who delivered them at the Jordan. God was the one who delivered them at Jericho. And God would need to be the one to deliver them from this situation. They're putting their trust in an it and not a him. See, the problem is their inconsistency. Look where, where they pull the box from. Look at verse 4. So the people sent to Shiloh and brought their, the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord of hosts. They went to Shiloh. That's the place where everything that's happened, pretty much, in chapters 1 through 3 has happened. So, God has been present at Shiloh when Eli looked the other way at his wicked sons. God has been present at Shiloh when the priests. We're in immorality. God has been present in Shiloh when they robbed people of sacrifices. And God is in Shiloh when Poppy and Phinehas show up to get the box. See, what the problem they have is that they think that God is present when it's convenient for them. They don't remember that God is everywhere. God is in Shiloh. God knows and sees. They want to pick and choose so that they can manipulate this victory out of God. And if you look at verses 5 through 9, you see that the, what the Israelites are thinking is very similar to what the Philistines are thinking. Because the box shows up, and Israel's ecstatic, right? Their victory is here, pre packaged victory in this Ark of the Covenant. They have assurance, even though it's false assurance. And the Philistines hear that the box is there, and they're terrified. Because they, to their credit, Know how God has delivered His people from Egypt, right? They don't have all the details, right? As you can tell, God's plural, and they're treating the God of Israel like they would treat one of their gods—kind you know, of the a local thing and a symbol—and that's where the power is. So the Philistines and the Israelites have a very similar view. And what's tragic about what happens is, what are the Philistines thinking when they win? Of Israel had a little more oomph to it. You know, like, it's kind of weird. I was expecting this to be a lot harder than it was. Maybe there's not as much to this God of Israel as we thought. And they're left with this confusion. And so, just their little brave heart speech or whatever they have to give in verses um, 8 and 9, like, take courage, be men, don't, like, we're going to die if we don't win. Like, go out and get them. It's enough they feed the Israelites. This superstition is the problem. Now before we, again, let's let's think about how this translates into our context. Before we mock them for this, ask yourself, have I ever objectified God? Have I ever treated him like I could bend his will by acting in a certain religious way? To get some points in my bank account that I can spend later? (laughs) you know, have we ever done that? Do we find ourselves living out of superstition instead of living by faith? How do we do that? Well, obedience points. We can think that doing religious stuff puts God in our debt. Giving money or serving the poor. We can treat the Bible like a charm, like carrying it around like it will protect me. You can think if we have a pastor pray for something, it'll like matter more. The percentages of being heard will go up. On. I was once had a, a call to go out because someone thought that their home was like haunted or something. Okay, I got this. This is like, really interesting. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, obviously it's serious, but it was kind of like one of those, let's see what this turns into. And we were showing up and having this conversation and, and these folks, you know, knew about the gospel and laps and weren't really walking in faith and they just they you know, wanted me to like go into their teenager's room and say something or do something. And I remember and all we did was just talk about where they're at the Lord. You know? Like there's no magical incantation here. we can be we can superstitious in this way. Get the box closer. And don't we fall into thinking that God is present when we want him to be present. You know, in that moment of temptation, you're, you're just not aware, you're not thinking in terms of, God's here as well. When we're in a bind, then it's like, God is really near to us. And we're aware of that. See, this is our natural view of God. This is kind of man's natural default religion. Kind of the God of the sun, the God of the earth, the God of fertility, the God of private devotions, like whatever you want to call it. It's all kind of the same stuff. It's a superstition idea of God. But God is glorious because He is uncompromisingly holy. Mm -hmm. He doesn't play favorites. He's as holy on the day when the Israelites are walking in flagrant disobedience as the day when the Philistine is sacrificing to his pagan God. He's as holy all the time. And that's exactly the problem with the Pharisees in the New Testament, was that they were presuming on God's favor. They thought that God was playing favorites and kind of catered to them. And they thought that they were secure because they were Abraham's sons. Do you remember that? Where would you get off? I'm the son of Abraham. What are you talking about? It's this position of privilege that had been assumed. This is the same thing we see in this text and we see even in our own hearts. Where we need to guard our hearts against familiarity with God. Things are off track if we think that God understands why we sin in a certain case. Or if we begin like you know acting like the expert disciple that always has the answer instead of the humble learner. Now it's true that the gospel gives us unmatched security in Christ, right? And we need to learn to rest in that. That's true. But there is a danger in this proud invincibility that we have to be watchful of. See, a growing Christian is a repenting Christian and a teachable Christian. I remember one time I was talking with a friend about the struggle I was having and just, you know, my wife just didn't understand and, you know, my sin and it was just so hard she just didn't get it and I remember I, I remember this type of so. And he just stops me, he says, and he asks this question, and I never forgot. It. He asked me, what exactly is understandable? Compromisingly holy. Now we're not, and he understands our frailty, and he's going to work with us and sanctify us and all those things. But we must not think that God's standard is somehow sliding because, well, he knows us, he understands us. It's not that way. He's not a God of superstition. We must not presume that God will compromise his holiness on our behalf. That's not what the gospel says. Mm -hmm. The gospel is not that God has compromised his standard, it's that he's found a way to graciously meet his standard. <coughs> and there is a big difference between those things. God of faith or God of superstition. Let's look at the third point there. Shocking outcome, shock waves. See in verses 10 through 22, a really brief account of what the result was, 10 and 11, and then just the rest of it, 12 through 22, are really the waves that kind of blow through as this shocking news spreads. The results of this battle are really telling, aren't they? Israel wasn't only defeated, they were crushed. 30,000 dead afterwards. Not only that, but the priests are dead, and now the ark, the very place where God manifested his presence and power, was gone. The Lord of hosts who is enthroned on the cherubim is a prisoner of war, it would seem. Now this was totally unexpected, right? I mean, these folks were pumped because this golden box was going to be the answer, and now the golden, even the golden box is gone. How would God allow this to happen? How does God's presence get captured? And notice it's in the capturing of the ark that actually gets the most reaction out of Eli and his daughter-in-law. The text explicitly points to that as being the thing that really um, blindsided them. Eli <laughs> he, he, so these two folks. Okay, sorry, so this is happening. I try to enjoy. <laughs> um, so the So the shocking news in verses 10 and 11 is that they get smoked. The box is gone. But then there's two different scenes where it shows how these shock go out. And, and it demonstrates really what the shocking thing is. I and mean, you see that in Eli. He's this uh, leader. So he's, uh, and you can tell it says his heart is, is troubled or is, is trembling. Or is, there's this fearful sense that he knows what's really going on in Israel. He really knows that that the the presence of God has not been manifest in their midst because they've been unrighteous. And to send the ark into that, I think he senses this, this is not gonna go like it went down to Joshua. And so he's trembling, he's waiting for news and this person comes back and gives this report. And we know that we've heard two different times in the book of 1 Samuel that God has promised to end the lives of Eli's sons on the same day, and even his own life on the same day. And now, as this picture of blindness continues, Eli is totally blind. 98, he's been at it for 40 years, kind of this finality and culmination, and he hears the news and he falls over backwards, and breaks his neck, and he dies. But the news that seems to be most disturbing is the fact that the Ark of the Covenant captured. I'm sure he was sad to hear about a son. I'm sure he was. But the thing that was surprising to him was that, and the same with the daughter of law mom. This is quite a story for her. She's around, these women are around her trying to comfort her with the fact that she's dying, she's had a son, and she's had none of it. She's not comforted by that. She's shocked, not only about the death of these family members, about she says twice, glory has departed from Israel. Glory of God has departed from her. like, and then she dies, it leaves this haunting question: this baby Ichabod who's last to. Is God in exile? they've got the box. We don't have the box. How does this work? You know, they're just confused. They don't know what to do. And God has pre-planned, as we know, he's pre-planned these shockwaves, right? He's told us what's going to happen. And now Israel actually has a clearer picture of their true spiritual condition. It looked good for a while, but God had been exiled from their hearts for a very, very long time. And now the reality is reflecting what's really true of them, and they don't know what to do. Well, in the midst of that confusion, as we think about how this translates into our day and time and lives, we see that God is glorious because he's in control of all things. See, God has been faithful to his word that after the 40th year of Eli's ministry, he makes two it on his promise, and these two unrestrained sons are now restrained. And this passive priest has now been replaced, right on his schedule, right in his way. He's done what he said he would do. And ironically, the people who are worried that God's glory is suffering because the ark has been captured, but he's being glorified because his word is becoming true. Right? They're like, oh no, for shame from this, but his glory is being seen because what he said is actually coming to pass. He's being glorified as the promise keeper. Even in the midst of this devastation, God is glorious. He's in control of all these things. You know, there are times in our lives when we are confused by what God does. We don't understand how it how it results in greater glory to him. Like you look at the back of the book for answers and there's nothing there, and you don't know how this works. What is God doing? And it seems like his glory is being compromised by what's occurring. Can you you think of scenarios in your life where God's not being honored by this? How is this going to work? How is this going to play out in the end? This is what they're wondering. How is God going to handle being in enemy territory? Is God capable of defending himself in exile? Has the covenant gone with it? We're, our problem is that we assume that God is hindered by evil and defeat and we think if we can't understand how this is going to turn into God's glory then it must not God is glorious and God is different from us and you're going to see in the weeks to come that God is fully capable of handling his own business the are, okay. phenomenal stuff that he does in the Philippines it's hilarious actually his glory is going to be just fine. Okay? And you're going to see that in the weeks to come. Because the Philistines are going to learn what the Israelites are learning. They don't speak, God is not to be trifled. Mm-hmm. Not a toy. Not a It's Not a button to push. It's not how this works. Yeah. The glorious personal, almighty, uncompromisingly holy, sovereign God of Israel. Yeah. This is different. This is like different level. Okay? The little trinkets, it's not. It's not like who's got the shiniest trinket in battle. That's not how this works. But he is going to be just fine. He recycles evil and defeat and suffering and tragedy and death and pain, and he uses all that to bring glory to himself. He is not hindered by those things. He is so superior to evil and to the demonic and to to the, the pain and the corruption that we have welcomed into this world that he leverages it and he uses it Incorporates it into his will. He's fine. I remind me of the time when, the, when Jesus told the disciples that he was going away. you remember that? And they're like all freaked out. What? Yeah, it's to your advantage that I go. You're be leaving us. Like what? Do you, what? How is this better? You know. And in the end, of course, it was their salvation that he accomplished, and the sending of the Holy Spirit, and the nearness of God's presence, and all those things, we know ahead of time, but in that moment, what are you talking about, God? You're going away? So, even though the outcome was shocking to Israel, it was not shocking to the sovereign God of Israel. He had planned it, and he has plans for how it's going to play out in the land of the Philistines. He pre-planned going into exile. And interesting, God plans a temporary defeat. I'm going to let the Israelites get smoked, and go to the Philistines, teach them the same lesson, and I'm going to make my way back. And everyone's going to be the wiser because of this plan. Isn't that genius? Mm-hmm. Can you think about what, what, what he's accomplishing in this, this is amazing. So, what I want us to do now is just notice the pattern that we've seen, okay? What's the pattern of these three things and how There's this distortion that happens where God's people distort who God is. They misunderstand something about him. And God comes in and protects his glory. So Israel treated God like he was in a personal deliverance system. They ignored his warnings, but God is personal and so he wouldn't tolerate being manipulated. He defended his glory by not accepting their lack of repentance. This is going to be on my terms. Repentance are one of those. Israel presumes on this privileged position; they act like they're the exception to God's perfect holiness. He says, "No, no, 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 no! You're not. He's uncompromisingly holy at all times to all people, and he defends his glory by allowing the ark to be captured and the army to be crushed." Israel is shocked by the outcome, thinking that God made a mistake by going into exile. That's a distortion. All the universe is under His sovereign control, and so God. Protects his glory by using these unexpected circumstances to make good on earlier familiar promise. You see what's happening? We distort what God is like, God protects his glory. We distort what God is like, God protects his glory. This is what this means that God protects his glory from our distortions. God protects his glory from our distortions. See, he's too glorious to be manipulated by you and by me. He's not a God and a genie, right? It's like, just tell me what you want me to do. I'll do whatever you ask. He's got something far, far better than that going on in history. He's full of glory. And so, so what, what is the purpose for this chapter in terms of the readers that are reading this? What's, what's the aim, really, of the author? And I think it's to guard our hearts. To guard our hearts. To guard our hearts from these distortions that come in. But God is always more glorious than we think and he's more committed to his glory than we think. We short sail on this in a lot of different ways. We suffer from this distorted view of God and we foolishly try to manipulate him. Well, how, how might this text help us to guard our heart? Well, first it kind of upsets our familiarity with God. Has this, has this reminded you how glorious God is in some ways? He's, he's different than you thought. That he's personal. He's uncompromising. He's holy. He's sovereign. Maybe those those reminders will stir some reverent unfamiliarity in you. You remember that God is not. You don't. You don't have like the market on what God's doing. You don't. Or you're still learning. You're still understanding. Second, it illustrates these common distortions that we suffer from. So in what ways is our distorted view of God leading us to try to manipulate him or presume on him or assume things about him? Is he your blessing dispenser? Are you learning and cashing in bonus points? Are you doubting his wisdom in regards to suffering or confusing circumstances? We are all God distortionists, aren't we? Mm-hmm. But there's kind of two different versions of that in this text. There's the Philistine version, they don't really know who God is yet. And some of you have been distorting God's image because you're like everyone else. And today is an opportunity to come to those crossroads and say, Am I going to, to forsake my understanding and idea of God for the God who is revealed in the Bible? That's a crossroads that everyone is called to. Will I give up my idea of God and accept by faith? who he says he is and what he has done. That's the question in front of you. If God is different than you presumed and he's gone way out of his way to communicate that, wouldn't that be good to know instead of your own version of him? The entryway to understanding that is the gospel and the person of Jesus Christ. So I would encourage you, if that's you this morning, like I had certain ideas about God, but like this first thing before this, thousand people dead on the ground, being exiled in the field. That, that's not driving with what I thought. Seek him. Open up the Gospel of John. Look at the person of Jesus Christ. Let him reveal himself to you. That's how this works. Maybe those of you, though, who've come to know God already, there you've realized there's this danger of presuming. They presume to know enough. I read that passage before. You presume maybe on his grace, Maybe you presume that you know what's best I think this exposes these common distortions that we suffer from and last, and this will lead into our time of communion, and that's this this text points to Jesus Jesus is the cure of all of our God distortion he is high definition revelation from God he's the ultimate example of how God allows temporary defeat for long term victory, isn't he? His, his crucifixion is the most shocking event that's ever happened in the history of the world. And yet it was the most redemptive thing that's ever happened in the history of the world. I mean, God takes what happened in 1 Samuel 4 and ramps it up a thousand times over in the person of Jesus. Jesus isn't merely God in a symbolic kind of sense, like he's kind of sort of here. He is God in the flesh. And the Philistines said God has come into the camp about Jesus that you write. He's God. He's the final solution to this distortion problem. Because He is the way that God has planned to bring us to Himself. He's the new meeting place with God. He is the fulfillment of this mercy seat where God is going to dwell and meet with His people. Listen to Hebrews. You see, the Holy of Holies is no longer inaccessible. Hebrews 9 tells us that Christ came to the greater and more perfect tent, that He entered once for all into the holy places by means of His own blood securing an eternal redemption. Later on in that chapter, it says, For Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. What does that mean? Why does that matter? We take communion. Listen to what Hebrews 10 says. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is through his flesh. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, not like Eli, let us draw near with the true heart and full assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering for he who promised is faithful. As we prepare our hearts for communion, Consider the great glory of our God. Get unfamiliar with him again. Maybe they've just spend our preparation time this morning dwelling on that. Praising him for one of these attributes we've talked about. Or maybe you know that there's a way that you try to domesticate or manipulate God. And you need to own that this morning. I've been superstitious. Not living by faith. Maybe God's exposed the distortion in your life and you need to spend time thinking about and praying about. As you consider those things, then we're going to, to, to experience bread and cup and let the good news of this crucified and risen Lord remind us about glory and grace. Let me pray for us as we prepare our hearts for communion. Heavenly Father, we come to you this morning thankful, in awe, covered by the blood of your son Jesus, if we place our faith in him, become as distortionists. Now we need your clarity. faithful high priest. He is the one who has made the inaccessible accessible. He is now our meeting place with you. Would you help us